You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, guys. Glad you guys are here. First, let me say thank you to Philip Hickerson for filling in for Stephen Walashek as he is out in the pagan state of California. Um, God be with him. Uh, he said he couldn't make it to John MacArthur's church this morning, and that made me really sad for him. But anyhow, so yeah, Stephen's out uh, visiting some family in California. That's why he's not here. But Caleb, who, who was part of like one of the original forms of the Revolution Praise Band, decided to, to come back uh, and help us this evening, and I appreciate that. And also, I'm really stoked to see Bob and Chris Knox back. Was England great? Yeah. I'm glad you guys are back and you're safe. All right, so if you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 6 through 12. I know I did 6 through 9 last week, don't worry, we're going to recap that, uh, but we're going to be focusing on verses 10, 11, and 12 this evening uh, as we continue our, our study of 1 John, where we're looking at the basics of our faith, right, John writes a very plain, simple letter, and seeing how those core aspects of our faith are to affect our Life. Joe Thorne had a sermon series on this that I wanted to steal the name from called Doctrine and Devotion. It's just so good, and I'm not that clever, right? So I chose a series name two months into it because I'm not creative. I'm here to preach, not be creative. Anyway, um, so let me start with a question this evening. Do you believe God? Do you believe God? I'm not asking whether or not you believe in a deity or if you believe in the existence of God a God or the God of the Bible. Rather, do you believe what God has spoken? Do you believe what God has spoken? Most importantly, do you believe what God has spoken regarding His Son, Jesus Christ? Because that's what we're going to be considering this evening. That's what John is aiming at. Do you believe what God has spoken concerning His Son? In the context of the passage that we're going to be looking at, John is pressing his readers to believe in the testimony of God. And the testimony of God, in a nutshell, is that Jesus Christ is his son. But before we begin, uh, just kind of taking that and trying to apply it uh, generally, broadly, um, I want to challenge you with this. Do you believe everything God says? Do you believe everything he says? And that's a rhetorical question, because I know you don't. I know you don't, right? Yeah, I hope you're mad, right? And I know I don't uh, either. I don't always believe everything that God says. And I, and I say that as a blanket thing. I know that none of us always believe everything that God says because I know that everyone sins. Is my beard doing that? That's embarrassing if so. But for real, bring it back in. Bring it back in, guys. I know that you don't always believe God because you sin, right? And unbelief is the root of sin. I used to think that pride was the root of sin. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's true most of the time. Uh, But I I think unbelief is the root of sin. So that's something I want to highlight in this sermon. So keep keep that in your mind. I want to highlight the wickedness of unbelief. But at the same time, I want to bring to light the blessing that comes with believing what God has said. So last week we talked about God's testimony to Jesus Christ and how it is absolutely undeniable. And now tonight we're going to be looking at the two different responses that people can have to the testimony of God concerning his son. You can respond in belief or you can respond in unbelief. And to try to take a passive third option is to respond in unbelief. 
right? You either believe or you disbelieve. So summary of this sermon for any note takers or whatever is this. The believer is a co-witness with God to Jesus Christ and a recipient of eternal life. But the unbeliever calls God a liar and has only death. And so with that being said, let's read our text for this evening. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures. They are sufficient. In them we see everything that is necessary for us to believe, to be saved. We see in them everything necessary for us to live a life of faithfulness to you, to live a godly life that pleases you, and to receive salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I thank you for that sufficient spoken word that you've given to us, that you've spoken in the scriptures. Lord, please illumine the scripture to us. Awaken our, our sleepy, uh, hard hearts this evening that we might receive your word. Holy Spirit, please do a work of sovereign grace this evening. Quicken us. Let us see the truth in the text. And let us leave here changed. If there are unbelievers here, God, I pray that you would draw them to your son that they might repent and believe the gospel and be saved. And for those of us who already believe in Christ, help us to trust him more. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, uh, I, know we, I know I preached on uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 9 last week, but we're going to recap a little bit of that. And it's a strange passage, so for those of you who weren't here last week, get back on the podcast Check that sermon out. I don't have time to hash it all through. It was really strange. Uh, a, a commentator I read about uh, the, the spirit, the water, and the blood uh, said, he was commenting on it, and he said, yes, this is one of the most perplexing passages in the entire New Testament, right? So it's a weird passage. Go back and listen to that sermon if you weren't here. Uh, but to recap those first four verses of the text we read this evening, I want to I recap it so we can get some context for what we're talking about. So you guys will remember that John said in verse 5 even, I know we didn't read that, but it says, who is the one who overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So John says we must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in the four verses that come after that, verses 6 through 9, John goes on to identify who the Son is. And he says this is the one who came by water and blood. All right, so the Son of God that John proclaims, that he testifies to, is Jesus Christ. He says this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. All right, and in that, that phrase water and blood, we see... 
uh, or that, that phrase, he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, we see that John is proclaiming that Jesus is the God-man, right? Truly God and truly man, that he is divine, that he came into the world. He has a heavenly origin, that he came into the world with a salvific mission to redeem the people of God, that he is the Messiah, that he came into the world to save sinners. John's proclaiming that this Jesus is the one who was baptized, who came by the water, and who was also crucified and came by the blood also. And in that, John's saying that this Jesus he preaches has a public ministry in his life and also an atoning ministry in his death. In other words, you could say that he had a ministry of active obedience, which is Christ obeying God perfectly in place of the people of God, and then a, a, a ministry of passive obedience, which is to say Christ made atonement on the cross, suffering the wrath of God for us. So he who came by water and blood, an active and passive obedience for the people of God, that through faith in him we might receive his righteousness and have our sin imputed to him. Uh, but John then says, so he, he says, that's the Jesus I'm talking about, that one, right? the one who was baptized, the one who was crucified, that's the Jesus I'm referring to. But then John goes on in verse 7 to say that this Jesus has been testified to by God through his Holy Spirit. Right, and last week we teased out how the Holy Spirit testified to who Jesus was in his life, death, and resurrection, right? That at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a, like, a, like a dove, that the Holy Spirit was empowering Jesus to do his miracles, that the Holy Spirit, uh, there was all these supernatural events surrounding the death of Christ, like an earthquake, the sky going black at noon, the temple veil ripping from top to bottom, all of those things. And then the Holy Spirit testified uh, in the strongest way at the resurrection of Christ, that this is the Son of God. He was proclaimed to be the Son of God in power as the Spirit of holiness raised him from the dead, is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. All right, and we also uh, saw in verse 9, again, I'm just recapping this for you. I'm just trying to give you some context. In verse 9, John tells us, by this overwhelming witness right, that God has testified to who Christ is through his Holy Spirit, that this is the Jesus. He's identified him. He said, not only do I testify to him, but God testifies to him. Verse 9 tells us that by this overwhelming witness to Jesus, to this Jesus that John preaches, because of this overwhelming witness from God, we are morally obligated to believe what God has testified to. Right? He is God. He has spoken. He is to be obeyed. Right? He is to be listened to and believed, and we would be fools not to do so. John says, if you listen to the testimony of men, if you listen to what people testify about other people, and you believe it, then surely you would believe what God has testified concerning his own son. He does a lesser to greater argument in verse 9. But now after discussing, after discussing God's witness to Jesus, John goes on to talk about the necessary response and the results of believing or rejecting God's witness about Jesus. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. That's what John starts with. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Now notice there that John says whoever believes in the Son. That's actually like really significant for us, whoever believes in the Son. So just real quick, I know you guys already know this, but I want to highlight the difference between believing someone and believing in someone. Right? To believe someone is to accept facts about them, to believe that they're a person, right? to accept a statement that they have made or that someone else has made about them. But that's not what John says. 
He doesn't say whoever believes the Son of God. He says whoever believes in the Son of God. So it's not just about understanding facts about who Jesus of Nazareth is. He says whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. To believe in someone is to accept the whole person. To accept all that they stand for. It's very similar to faith, although John actually only uses the, the Greek word for faith once. This is what he's pushing at. It's a similar thing to believe in. To trust this person completely, to believe in the Son of God. And with that, really believing in them carries with it the connotations of loyalty and obedience and trust. You're going to follow this person that you believe in. This is a rock-solid conviction about this person. I wholly accept who this person is. That kind of believing in the Son of God is what John is after. Right? Not just some intellectual assent to the testimony of God. John is aiming at true, genuine, saving faith in the Son of God. And he says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Right? Which sounds like a kind of a strange phrase for us. But to have the testimony in us is to be in complete agreement with what God has declared about Jesus. It's to be in complete agreement with God. So whatever God says about his son, about Jesus, we say, yes, Lord, and we believe it. Really similar to the Apostles' Creed. God has said, this is my son. He's truly God. He is truly man. He was born of a virgin. He was sinless. He kept the law for my people. He was crucified for my people. Suffered the penalty for the sin of my people when he was crucified. He died for my people was resurrected on their behalf and has ascended to my right hand, is both Lord and Christ, and is coming again to judge both the living and the dead. God says that and we respond, yes, Lord, I believe, amen. He is all of those things. We believe the testimony of God, which is the gospel, and we apply it to ourselves. Right? That's what it means to have the testimony that we trust in his son alone for our salvation. We utterly are convinced of the truth of what God has spoken concerning his son. We have the testimony. But he says we have the testimony in ourselves if we believe. And that's really strange. Right? What do you mean you have the testimony? He has the testimony in himself, whoever believes in Jesus. That is to say this. This is, this is one of the most uh, profound things I, I thought that I read this week concerning this passage. One commentator said that to have the testimony in yourself is to say that we internalize what God has said about Christ. So we take what God has spoken, we believe it, we accept it, we appropriate it, right? We make it our own. And when I say make it our own, I don't mean we change it. It's God's gospel. It's not my gospel. It's not your gospel. You don't mess with the gospel in the words of R.C. Sproul. We don't have the right to change the gospel, but we appropriate it. We make it our own, and this is wild. Now the testimony of God becomes our testimony about Jesus. That's what John's saying. If you believe in the Son of God, God's testimony becomes your testimony. So in a way, we become co-witnesses with God to Christ. We are, spiritually speaking, witnesses to who Jesus is. The testimony is in us, it is ours. And all that I could think whenever I was reading, reading that bit of the commentary was what grace from God that he would invite and allow sinners, people who were formerly his enemies, who did not believe 
to now be witnesses, co-witnesses with him to his son. What grace from God that he would invite us in to that. Now in light of what a privilege that it is to be a co-witness with God to Christ, I want to, just a quick drive-by application here. I want to ask this. Is God's testimony in you? And I'm not saying do you believe it or not. I'm talking to Christians, people who have repented and believed the gospel. Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. If you have believed the gospel, is God's testimony in you? But what I mean by that is have you taken on God's testimony about Jesus as your own, and now, as God does, do you now declare that testimony to the world? Keep in mind, God testified to who Christ was. That means he made it known who Christ is. Do you, do you, is the testimony in you? Because if you believe what God has declared concerning his son, then you should go likewise give witness to Christ. But we'll keep it real, right? And if you've been a Christian for any number or any, any amount of time, significant amount of time, you'll notice this. Our evangelism that's what I'm talking about. Go give a witness to who Jesus is. Go evangelize people. Our witness tends to wax and wane, doesn't it? I mean, even as a whole congregation, right? I'm just being real with you guys. I talk to you, right? We got to, anyway. But our evangelism seems to wax and wane, right? Sometimes we're on it. Sometimes we're, we're just, you ever go hunting? I was talking to Chris Jones about this. Like you wake up in the morning and you're like, I don't know who it's going to be today, but some unbelievers here in the gospel, right? And you like pour like deer pee on your boots. Like you go out, like you're out hunting, right? Like, like I'm, I'm hunting for an unbeliever to evangelize. But other times we slack off, right? We neglect this duty to proclaim Christ, but it should be steady, Right, both in deed and in word. Right, Don't buy that lie that you can just live a Christian life in front of somebody and they're going to ask you, hey, why do you live different, me, differently than I do? Like You'll die before anyone asks you, hey, why, why do you not sleep with your girlfriend? And be like, well, apparently this dude just isn't bold is probably what the unbeliever will say. Just to keep it real with you, right? they're not going to ask those questions because of the morality of your life. We have to go proclaim the gospel. But nevertheless, our deeds, how we live, should also be a, they should adorn the gospel that we profess. Our evangelism should be steady. Let me ask a further question. Do you ever talk to unbelievers about the gospel? Do you ever talk to them? Do you ever talk to unbelievers? I know that some of us do, right? Shout out to my homie Nick Sherman, who never stops. I love that guy. He's, he literally doesn't care, guys. Like, seriously. He'll be walking down the street. I'm, I'm going to brag on you, man. I'm sorry. This is not in the notes. Uh, yeah, I'm freestyling, so I'm dangerous right now. Um, Nick will walk down the street and just see a guy and be like, I'm going to tell him the gospel. Like, he doesn't know the guy. He's like, hey, do you got like five minutes, man? Like, I don't know. Do you know who Jesus is? Right? It's astounding. Like, that kind of stuff. Like, I applaud that. That takes some boldness, man. Glory to God. Thank God for that. But do you ever talk to unbelievers about the gospel? Again, I know some of us do. But statistically speaking, not nearly enough of us do. And I'll say this and keep it real with you, because I love you guys, I love this church, I'll say this, if you consistently keep this testimony all to yourself, you should be ashamed of yourself. Just being honest, you should be ashamed. I'm not saying that you're not a believer, right? I know uh, we have some people like in the, uh, in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, Timorous, right? People are afraid, people are timid people, believers can indeed be timid. 
But if you tell no one, day in, day out, just never tell anyone about Christ and him crucified, never give a testimony to who Jesus is, never talk about the gospel, you should be ashamed of yourself that you are silent about the Christ that you claim you love. The Christ who has saved you. So in, in a nutshell, I'm saying go evangelize. But John says that by trusting in Christ, just to recap that first half of this verse, by trusting in Christ, we are agreeing with God's testimony. And, and now we own that witness ourselves. So this is the positive aspect of the witness of God, where we respond in belief. But then John switches to the negative in verse 10 as well. It's 10b. He switches to what it looks like to reject what God has declared and its implications. He says this, Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So by not believing in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son, the unbeliever calls God a liar. So remember, believing in something means to obey, commit to, be loyal to, trust entirely. So he says, whoever whoever does not believe in the testimony that God has given concerning his son calls God a liar. So I would equate believing in the son of God with believing in the testimony of God. Okay, so I say that because believing in the testimony of God, that testimony is that Jesus is the Son of God, right? So I know I'm just kind of talking all over myself here, but they're the same thing. Believing, the testi- believing in the testimony and believing in the Son of God are the same thing. So what John says here is that whoever does not trust in and follow Christ as Savior and Lord accuses God of being a liar. It says you make him out to be a liar. This is really heavy, black and white, no exceptions language from John. He says, oh, you don't believe in the Jesus that I proclaim to you? Congratulations, you've just called God a liar. That's black and white language. So what I want to do here, is I was trying to tease that out in my mind, is how how do people reject the testimony of God? How do people reject the testimony of God concerning his son? So I just want to point out five or six different ways very quickly that they do that. And in doing so, I want us now, we're going to talk about unbelief in general here for a minute. I want us to see the ugliness of unbelief, the sinfulness of unbelief, as the Puritans say, so that we can see that sin is exceedingly sinful, right? That's what I want us to see is how wicked the unbelief is. So how do people reject the witness of God? Well, first off, God says, Jesus is my son. And man, in unbelief, some will respond and say, there was no Jesus. There was no Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is just a myth created by the church. I don't believe you, God. You are a liar. God has testified that Jesus is the God-man, truly God and truly man, my son. And man, in unbelief, may respond by saying, that is impossible Right, there is no way that God could become man and remain God. Right? You hear this a lot from the Jehovah's Witnesses. You'll hear this from the Mormons. You'll hear this from Muslims. Right? There's no way that God could become man and remain God. God in his testimony has said, Jesus Christ is the Lamb who takes away the sins of my people. Who takes away the sins of the world. 
And man in unbelief responds by saying, sin is a myth invented by the church just to keep people down and from reaching their full potential and to oppress them. I don't believe you, God. You're a liar. God has testified and said, Jesus Christ bore my wrath in the place of sinners. And man in unbelief will respond and say, God has no wrath. My God would not be a wrathful God. It was a travesty that Jesus was murdered on a Roman cross, but he essentially died for nothing. I don't believe you. You're a liar. God declares in Christ that he is the righteousness of my people. And man in unbelief says, I am a good person. I don't need a substitute. I don't want anyone else's righteousness. I am good enough on my own. But what about the person, this is what got me. So those are, just, those are some ways that people reject the testimony of God. But what about, we probably all know someone like this, the person who accepts all of the facts about Jesus, right? Their Christology is on point, right? He is the God-man, he's the son of God, he was crucified for sinners, raised from the dead, all that stuff. What about the person who accepts all the facts about Jesus, right? They intellectually assent to everything God has spoken about his son. How does that person call God a liar? I have one more example. And I think that every single unbeliever falls into this category. God testifies and says, I offer you something in Jesus Christ that is more satisfying than anything in this world. I offer you true satisfaction in my son. You cannot get it anywhere else. And the world in one unified voice says, I don't believe you. You are a liar. I will continue on in my pleasure and in my sin. I think everyone falls into that category that does not believe on Christ. God says, I offer you something here that you cannot get anywhere else. And man says, no, I'll keep trying. I'll keep trying to get it somewhere else. Can you see why this is so serious? Every step of the way in unbelief, the unbeliever must call God a liar. And what audacity does it take for a sinner to look God in the face and call him a liar? So I want you to see the sinfulness of unbelief. Right? It's not like a lot of people think, like, oh man, poor guy, he is intellectually getting this wrong, and that's why he doesn't believe. No, it's not just an intellectual mistake, it is sin. It is not a mistake to be pitied. It is a sin to be hated because unbelief is the root of all sin. Look at our first parents. All right, look at our parents, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God said, if you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. And the serpent goes up to Adam and Eve and says, you won't die. And then they eat. What does that mean? They did not believe what God had said. It was unbelief that led to the fall of mankind into sin and it plunged us into darkness. All sin can be traced to unbelief. We sin when we do not believe in God. I'm not denying our our original sin that we're born sinners. But we sin when we don't believe God. I'm talking to Christians as well as unbelievers right now. God looks at us and he says, don't do it, man. (laughs) It's not going to bring you any kind of happiness or lasting joy. And what do we do? We tell them, I don't believe you, and then you go and watch pornography. 
Writer God says, don't do it, man. It's not going to bring you any security. And we say, I don't believe you. And you go and chase money in your greed. And you live day in, day out chasing paper, ignoring your family, ignoring your children, ignoring your duties as a Christian, so that you can work more to acquire more because you think it's going to give you security. And God says it won't. Read Isaiah. God says it won't. God says to us, don't do it. It's not going to make you feel better. It's not going to make you look better. And we say, I don't believe you. And we go and gossip about people. All the time. I have a few more examples, but you get the point. We sin when we don't believe God. And I say that because if we believed him, we wouldn't sin. If we actually believe what he said, this is not good for you, I hate this, I am God, you are my creation, you have a duty to obey me. If we really believed all of that, we wouldn't sin. Because true belief changes how you live. Right now, an example of this, right? So let's think about what does it mean to call God a liar, right? Fun, fun, fun time. You get mad whenever someone doesn't believe you about something trivial, right? Like, think about that. Like, how irritated do you get, right? Like, hey, baby, what time are we supposed to be at this party? I'm narrating my own home right now. Uh, I think we're supposed to be there at 6. Mm, no, I think I'm supposed to be there at 5. No, I'm so, I, I think you're wrong, Dave. I think we're supposed to be there at 6. By the way, usually Autumn's right. Um, but, yeah, it's like, no, I, I think I'm supposed to be there at 5, and no, it's, I, I, think, I think it's six, and you're just like, shut up, I know I'm right, right? Like, all the people, I know the answer. I love you. Um, right, but you get irritated whenever someone doesn't believe you over something trivial, right? You get a little bit irritated about it. But what about this? It's, it's similar. What about whenever someone falsely accuses you of something serious? Right, you, ever been, you ever been falsely accused of something that threatens your reputation? That, th that challenges your integrity and you're falsely accused, you could hurt someone when that happens, couldn't you? You could utterly destroy someone when that happens. You are furious when you're falsely accused. Now imagine a sinner looking the holy God who hates sin, who has commanded against lying, who cannot lie because it is not in his nature, looking that holy God in the face and saying, you're a liar. Imagine that. What do you think happens to that sinner who obstinately refuses to believe God and instead calls him a liar? What hope is there for that sinner? There is no hope for that sinner. Only the wrath of God is for that sinner and their obstinate unbelief. So we see in verse 10 that the believer is a co-witness with God while the unbeliever contradicts the witness of God. All right, but then John goes on the positive again. Right? He's like bipolar. He keeps switching back and forth, positive, negative. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And this is, in a nutshell, our faith. This is our religion in one verse. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. So here whenever John says testimony, he's talking about what we're going to call the further testimony of God. Right? So last week we talked about verses 6 through 9. 
right, about the spirit, the water, and the blood. That is the testimony of God to the person and work of Jesus. But this is the testimony to the benefit that believers receive through Jesus. Right, so you could look at it this way, as if John's saying, this is what the spirit and the water and the blood were ultimately pointing to, that Jesus Christ is the life giver to the believer. Right, so this verse is pointed directly at the Christian, at the one who has repented and believed the testimony of God concerning his son. And John is saying, if you have believed the testimony of God, if you have believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if that is true of you, you have eternal life. Please don't take that for granted. That's a truth you already knew. Please don't take that for granted. Let that wash over you again. If you have believed the testimony of God, eternal life is yours. Know that in the depth of your soul, Christian. There is no wrath for you. You will never experience an ounce of God's displeasure in the life to come. There is no condemnation for you because Christ Jesus has bore your sin and your guilt on the cross. He has reconciled you to God. John says you have life in this Son. You will not perish under the wrath of God. And this life is yours. So just a little aside about this. John says, this life is yours. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. If you've believed the testimony of God about Christ, if you've believed the gospel, God, past tense, has given you eternal life. It's yours. This is God's word to you that by faith in his son, you have life. And he will not take it back. It is yours forever, Christian. You are secure in the life giver, Jesus Christ. But not only do we have eternal life to come after this one, we are also currently in possession of eternal life now. Right? John, John makes this point a few different times. Again, he says he has given it to us. We already have it. Right? So not just in the life to come, but now. Just a few quick thoughts on that. First, our spiritual thirst has been satisfied in Christ. Right In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, he says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, this is Jesus, says he will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Right? So this yearning, right, this thirst that we had for God has been satisfied in Christ. This yearning that we had to know our Creator and be at peace with Him is ours. This desire that we felt that there must be more than just this material world has been met in Christ. Our thirst to be made righteous in God's sight has been met in Christ. We've come to be filled with Him. He's given us that living water and it's welled up into eternal life in us. Second, we no longer walk in the darkness of sin. Right? We no longer walk in ignorance. That's another, pro, another, another thing that means to have eternal life. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, but will have the light of life. 
So again, this life comes through the Son, and it is light to us. So through faith in Christ, we have been brought out of our spiritual darkness and our love of sin and our slavery to sin, and we have been given freedom and a new master in Christ to walk in light, which is to walk in obedience to God. We've now been given that freedom, and it's actually a privilege to walk in obedience to the commandments of God. It is no burden for us. Thirdly, we have an abundant spiritual life now. And I'm, got, I'm not getting TBN on you with that. But we have an abundant spiritual life now. John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He says he comes to give us abundant life through him. So knowing Christ, and we've talked about this earlier in this series, knowing Christ gives us real meaningful life now. Right? The Christian life is meant to be robust. Right? We have peace with God, a life of peace with God. No trying to save ourselves. Peace with Him, that we can actually live for Him, following Him. We live a life having God's comforts and graces toward us as He guides us and hedges us in and pushes us onward. We know of God's promises to us in His Word and we rely on them and we rely on Him. We no longer live a shell of human life. Rather, we know the Creator personally and truly live for what matters, which is His glory. We have an abundant life now. And when our earthly lives are over, we continue to live on in perfection with our God and King. Like Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And so we have life now, true life now and eternal life to come. And I, it, this has to be said, this life that we have been given is in His Son, given to us, which means it is the pure gift of God. There was no merit it for, from us to obtain this life. All we, Christian, all we had merited was the wrath of Almighty God on us for our sin. But this life has come to us by the good sovereign pleasure of God our Father through the person and work of His Son. It has come by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, alone, as a gift to us. And then finally in verse 12, our final verse, John says, Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's, this sums up everything John has been saying in this passage. And that's the truth, isn't it? Whoever has the Son of God has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's pretty simple. It really is that simple. It's the truth. To believe in the Son is to have Him. Which is a wild concept. What a blessing for the believer. To believe in the Son is to have Him. To believe in Jesus is, be, is to be united with Him by faith. So whatever is His now becomes ours as, as, as if we're married. Right? We are the bride of Christ. We've been united with Him. We have been united to the One who is the life. That means that His life is ours. And we have it only because of Him. We are His. And by the grace of God, He is ours. As well, we have him. But the opposite is painfully true as well. Whoever continues to reject the Son of God has no life, only death. John makes this point pretty clear in this passage, but Jesus Christ makes it crystal clear in the Gospel of John, 
chapter 3. He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then John, the Gospel writer, actually finishes the chapter with verse 36. And he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And notice there, to obey the Son is contrasted with, or not obeying is contrasted with believing. So in that passage from Christ, we see that Christ came in the world to save, not condemn. Which is a beautiful thought. But it's not as chipper as, as a lot of people want to make that out to be. Jesus Christ didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came to save the world. Yes and amen. But the reason why he says that is because the world didn't need condemned by him. The world stood condemned already. The unbelieving world is condemned already because they haven't believed in him. That's the reality of it. By not believing in Jesus, the wrath of God abides on the unbeliever. This is a grim reality, but it's true. Again, there are only two options. There's no such thing as passivity in this. Apart from Jesus Christ, all men are condemned. But there stands God in this passage, graciously offering eternal life to all who will come to His Son by faith, believing His testimony. Believing the gospel. I can't help but to think that John is laying out two choices for the reader in this passage. He's saying, will you accept God's word and live through his son Jesus? Or will you continue to reject God's testimony, call him a liar, and perish for eternity under his wrath and hell? You must choose. Will you believe God and live or will you call God a liar and die? I have three things for us to consider from this passage. The first is this. If you're here among us and you're an unbeliever, I beg you, run to Christ. Repent of your foolish unbelief and look to Christ by faith. That is no work for you to do, to look unto Him. To trust Him. I implore you, trust Him alone for your salvation. Believe the testimony of God. He will not turn you away. He says, all who come to me, I will in no way cast out. And John tells us earlier in this letter that all who come to Christ by faith will never be put to shame. Secondly, I'm addressing Christians for these last two. In light of the blessing of eternal life in Christ... What a glory that that is. And also the grimness of eternal hell for the unbeliever. As I said earlier in the sermon, we must tell people the gospel. This is not a stretch for application. If the testimony of God is in us, we must tell people. You must. I won't beat a dead horse, but I will say heaven is too magnificent, hell is too terrible, and God's glory is too great for us to be silent when it comes to telling people the gospel. 
So shake off your fears and your backwardness and go give testimony to who Jesus is. And then lastly, believer, I do want you to be encouraged. I know I just challenge you a lot to go share the gospel with people, and that's terrifying. (laughs) I get it. But I do want you to be encouraged, if nothing else, from this sermon. John says eternal life is yours. Take that. Run with that. Be encouraged in that this week. Eternal life has been given to you. You who have come to Christ by faith have laid hold of the life giver. And you've been united with him. There is no wrath for you to fear because you have believed God's testimony concerning his son. And this has come to you by the perfection of Christ. The son of God in whom you have believed. So we'll end by reading one verse from our passage. This is the summary of our entire religion. Take this and hold it. 1 John 5.11 And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your Word. What a blessing it is to us to see these truths, to be reminded that you are not a God to be trifled with, that you are a God who demands that all men everywhere repent and believe in the name of Christ, that you do not take lightly being called a liar, but God, at the same time, to all who repent and believe your testimony about your Son. You promise eternal life to them. You promise the forgiveness of sins. You promise true life now. Thank you for that great blessing to us. Lord, encourage your people with that truth that eternal life is ours. That we have believed the testimony of God. But God, I pray you'd also humble us with the truth that we did not believe because we were smarter than other people, but we believed by your sovereign grace that your Holy Spirit caused us to be born again. And that's why we've believed. Lord, please make us evangelists. Make us into people who cannot hold this testimony in our hearts, or we can't hold it in, that we must tell people of Christ and Him crucified for sinners. We must tell people of the coming wrath of God. We must tell people about eternal life through your Son. Lord, help us to reflect you in the way that we give testimony to who your Son is. But again, God, we thank you for eternal life that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that no one can take us away from you. No one can ununite us from him. You are blessed forever. In Christ's name, amen.